We are in the book of Mark, chapter 8, as we continue our study there. Let's go to the, the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather openly and in your name. We thank you that, uh, that we get to study your word, that you have given us your revelation that so affects our life, Lord. And I thank you that the, as we study it and as we obey it, we become more like you. And I just pray, uh, that is my prayer for each and every one of us, that, that, that we would become more and more like you each and every day and that uh, you would show us where we're messing up, Lord, and we ask your forgiveness uh, for the things that we've done that we ought not to have uh, done, Lord, when we have, when we have not um, gone the right way. We just ask for your forgiveness and ask that you show us um, when that is and, and help us to, to continue to do better each and every day. I want to lift up all the ministries around this church uh, to you, the greenhouse, Lord. I want to pray for the Trail Life Troop, Awana starting up, Mops is going to start up, uh, the small groups that are going on, Lord. So much going on and so many opportunities for us to gather and uh, get closer uh, to each other and closer to you, and I just thank you for that, Lord. And I want to pray for our nation this morning. I just... Uh, seems like uh, our society is running, running away from you as fast as they can, but I just pray for them. I pray for our leaders, and more than anything, I pray for your church uh, that we would stand on your truth no matter what comes. Lord, bless us this morning as we spend time in your word. Help us to understand, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so I'm going to read Mark 8, 1 through 13. Follow along. If you'd like to, I'm reading from the New American Standard. So you may have a little different translation. In those days again, when there was a great multitude and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the multitude because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their home, they will faint on the way. And some of them come from a distance. And his disciples answered him, where will anyone be able to find enough to satisfy these men with bread here in a desolate place? And he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the multitude to sit on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them, and started giving them to his disciples to serve them. And they served them to the multitude. And they also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And when they had ate and were satisfied... And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. And about 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came to him and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. So question for you, how many of you use GPSs to navigate? <laughs> Pretty much ubiquitous nowadays. Anybody ever been in like a, an unfamiliar city and you're following your GPS and you get to your destination? But if somebody asks you, where did you go? You may say, well, I went to Cabela's, and they say, well, where was it? Well, it was in Kansas City. Yeah, but what part of Kansas City? I got no earthly idea. 
I got there, but I don't know if it's South Kansas City, North Kansas City, I just follow the arrow. That's all I'm doing, I'm following the arrow. I have no idea where I am other than the bubble around me, right? So I get to my destination, but I don't have the big picture. And Bible study is a lot like that, okay? We can get so focused on the individual verses as we study through a book, through, uh, through the, the, the paragraphs into the chapters, and we kind of lose sight of where we are. We can lose sight of what the, the author of the book is doing, okay? What the, the reasoning, the logical argument that he's making through the book. And we've been on that arrow for a while now in Mark. And I think this morning we're going to step back and we're going to take a look at the whole route. Just like on your GPS, I don't know if you knew this, but you can actually zoom out and see the whole route, like where you started, where you're going, which direction that is, all that stuff. That's what we're going to do a little bit this morning. And then we're going to come back with that in mind and look at our specific scripture this morning. And, and I want to do that because apparently the, Jesus' followers and the Pharisees and the scribes are stuck on the arrow. And it's so easy to do when we, when we live our lives, just to be, we're in the moment, and that's all we can do. We, we, we have a hard time stepping, stepping back and looking at the big picture of what's going on in our lives. And we see that they're there because what do the followers do? They say, well, how are we going to feed all these people? Um, didn't you remember he fed 5,000 just not long ago? And we have the Pharisees and the scribes saying, show me a sign. How ironic is that? I just fed 4,000 people miraculously, and you're telling me to show you a sign. So we're going to take a look at the big picture a little bit. And for a lot of you who've been gone for the summer, this will be a great review and catch you up to where we are in Mark now. Okay? So starting point. We're going to stay in Mark this morning primarily. We'll go a little bit to, to Matthew and, and maybe to Luke. Um, to some parallel passages, but primarily in Mark. And I just remember, Mark was written to a Gentile audience, okay? Specifically to, to, to Romans, but to a Gentile audience. So with that in mind, uh, uh, what is Mark trying to do with his book? Well, he's trying to convince us. He's telling us the gospel, right? He's trying to convince us that Jesus is God, that Jesus died for our sins, that Jesus rose again, and that Jesus is saved. That's the point of this, okay? But he's writing to a Gentile audience. So one of the interesting things about Mark is he doesn't use Christ or Messiah very often, okay? He uses it, but he doesn't talk a lot about Jesus's Messiahship because he's talking to a Gentile audience, and that doesn't mean anything to them. As a matter of fact, he uses it about half as much as Matthew does, and only about a third as much as Luke and John do, but what he does is he uses this word gospel. What does gospel mean? Good news, right? He uses this good news term twice as often as any of the other gospels. Luke and uh, John don't use it at all. We have it in the title, the gospel of Luke and the gospel of John, but they don't use gospel, good news, that word in their gospel at all. Matthew only uses it four times in 28 chapters. Mark uses good news, good news, eight times in only 16 chapters. So Mark is trying to tell us the good news, the gospel. Now you and I, when we think of gospel, what do we think of? We think of Jesus lived, died, 
for our sins, according to the scriptures, right? Three days later, he rose again, right? That's what we think of, and we're right to do so. That's what Mark is going to tell us. But I think it's a lot more fun and interesting as we're reading through a gospel to think about what the people he's talking to thought of. Okay, so Mark starts off right off the bat. He is, his goal is to show the Gentile audience that Jesus is special. As a matter of fact, he's so special, he's one of a kind. And as, because he's one of a kind, he's worth following. He's worth following. Right off the bat, he tells us the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So right off the bat, he tells us he's special. This is the Son of God, and this is the good news. Okay, this is the good news. Now, if you were Jewish at that time and you heard somebody talk about the good news and kind of link that to the Messiah, what is that good news in your mind? Yes, Rome is finally going to go. We are going to take them over and we're going to have our kingdom again. That's what would be in their brain. Okay, so at the beginning in Mark 1, 14 and 15... We read that after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. The gospel of God. This is the gospel from God, and it's the gospel about God. It's the good news from God, and it's the good news about God. That's what we're preaching. But they have no idea what that good news is. When we read that, we know the whole story. This is the beginning of his ministry. They don't know what the good news is. So Mark's purpose is to show us what the good news is what the gospel is. 15, it says, and saying, this is what Jesus was saying, and, and he was saying, the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the good news. So, hey, I've come preaching the gospel of God. What is the gospel of God? Right now, for the disciples, when they first hear this, the gospel of God is, the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. What does that mean? Hey, what you've been waiting for is here. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is here. And again, they would automatically go, woohoo, Rome's gone. Rome's days are numbered. Rome's days are numbered. The time is fulfilled. This is what the world has been waiting for. This is what is, has been expected. The kingdom of God is at hand. This is God's presence with us. This is God's plan for us. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's the good news. But again, let's have fun with it as we read this. We know the whole story. The disciples, the people that are hearing this the first time, they don't know it. And that's what the book of Mark does. That's what all the Gospels do in a little bit different way. But that's what the book of Mark does is it lays out this good news. It shows you from, hey, this is good news. And people going, okay, well, what's the good news? And Mark's going to lay out. And through his whole book, he's going to show us the good news. And what is the purpose of that? That's our starting point is, hey, the good news is here. What's the purpose? What's the ending point? Where does Mark want to get us to? He wants to get us to the second part of that verse. Repent and believe in the good news. Repent. Change your mind. Whatever you're thinking right now, you're thinking that Rome's going to go down. You're thinking that God can't do this, God can't do that. Whatever you're thinking right now, change your mind and believe in the good news. That's Mark's purpose for this book. 
The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand or near, some of your translations say. Therefore, repent and believe in the good news. Believe in the gospel. Jesus is special. He's so special, he's unique. And as we look through the book of Mark, it's so fun to to take this journey with the disciples to see how Jesus shows who he really is and overcomes their preconceived notions about what God is going to do to move them to belief in him. To move them to belief in him. And as Mark shows this to us, the Gentile reader that he's primarily writing for is going to go, wow, <laughs> that, guy's pretty, that guy's pretty cool. That guy's pretty amazing. Maybe I should follow him. If I believe what Mark is telling me, I need to follow this guy. So that's our starting point and our destination. And he, he goes back to the destination in the last chapter of Mark, obviously, chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. This is when they go to the, the empty tomb and the angel that's there, and he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who, was, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. Think of that statement. We saw him crucified. We're coming to the tomb. He's not there. And the angel says, Don't be amazed. Don't be amazed. He's not here. Just like he told you he'll be in Galilee. In other words... He has done all this stuff. He has proven himself so well that at the end, you should not be amazed that he's alive. You should believe. Don't be amazed. Behold, he is not here. Look look the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going uh, ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he said to you. In other words, he did exactly what he taught you he was going to do. So believe. So we start with, this is the good news. Mark wants to get us to belief in that good news. And the journey through the gospel is, what exactly is this good news? The disciples, the Pharisees, Jesus is teaching everybody what exactly this good news is. Right? Because if you read, the, when they read the Old Testament, they didn't go, oh yeah, God's going to send his son, he's going to suffer on the cross, he's going to die for our sins, and he's going to raise again. That was not what they thought. Right? So Mark takes us on this journey to show that that's exactly what's happening. The starting point is the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Mark is taking to the place where we repent and believe in the good news. Now let's take a a little bit of an overview of the route, route that we've been on so far, and then we'll pick it up in Mark 8. And, 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 and then with this mindset, hopefully as we finish, Mark, we're about almost halfway through it now. As we finish it, we will enjoy that journey so much more. We'll see really what Mark is doing and, and enjoy the journey uh, so much more. So the roads that we've been on to get there so far. Mark 2, or sorry, Mark 1, 2 through 11. Jesus is special. In, in Mark 1, 1, he's special because he's the son of God. 2 through 11, he's special because he has a herald. Right? Important people had heralds go before them. Right? And Jesus has two heralds. He has John the Baptist, so he's heralded by man. John the Baptist says, hey, one's coming after me. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Right? I'm not even worthy for that. So he's, he's heralded by John the Baptist, but then, so he's heralded by man. But then at his baptism, 
Jesus is heralded by God, right? Because the Spirit comes down as a dove and says, this is my beloved Son, or thou art my beloved Son. In thee I am well pleased. So Mark starts off right off the bat. He's the Son of God, and then he's special because he has a herald. He has a herald from man. He has a herald from God. Mark 1, 29 through 45, we see that he's special because he can heal sickness, even leprosy. He heals all kinds of various diseases, and he's even, he can heal, even uh, heals leprosy. He's even willing to reach out and touch a leper. Man, that's amazing. Nobody else would even think about doing that. Sorry, back up just a little bit. Mark 1, 21 through 27, he's special because he's master over the evil spirits. And that's an interesting little story that we went through um, because where was the spirit? The spirit was in the synagogue. That's a very bold spirit to be in the synagogue. Or maybe it's a comment on Israel's spiritual condition in that day. But either way, he's in the synagogue. And Mark shows us that Jesus has power over him. And not only does Jesus have power over him, but the spirit knows who he is and is frightened of Jesus and says, do not destroy me. And then the, the uh, response to that before that, as he was teaching in 122, the response of the people was they were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So man, this teaching is different. He's special because his teaching has authority, unlike any that we've ever heard before. Then he throws out this demon, and the response in 127 is, and they were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. In Mark 2, 1 through 12, Jesus is special because he can forgive sins and even overcome paralysis. He claims the authority to forgive sins, which is an obvious claim to deity. Because even they say, who can forgive sins but God? Uh-huh. You think maybe that's what Jesus is telling you? But their response on the Pharisee side is to want to destroy him because he's blaspheming as opposed to opening their eyes to what God is doing, that the kingdom of God is near. Liberal scholars today will say, no, Jesus wasn't claiming to be God. Well, they might not think he is, but the Pharisees and the scribes back then knew very well what he was claiming, that he was claiming equality with God. So he does that. And in 2.12, we see the response of the people again. 2.12, and the people, and, and he arose, uh, to, 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 um, the back, back half of 2.12 uh, says, after the guy got up, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. They're amazed again. They're glorifying God. The Pharisees are mad at him. The people are glorifying God. They have the right response initially. In 2, 13 through 22, he's special because he's approachable. He hangs out with the least des desirable people. He's bringing the good news to everybody. It's not just for those with status. It's for everybody. And he's dinged by the leaders for hanging out with the sinners. But the thing about Jesus is he hung out with the sinners, but he never celebrated their sin. Folks, he never celebrated their sin. He called it out and told them they need to change their ways. But he wasn't afraid to, afraid to be there. So he's special because he's approachable. Mark 23, 
or 2.23 through 3.6. He's special because he's even Lord over the Jewish holy days. This is another place where he slyly says that he's God. Because what does he say? He says, the Son of Man is, Lord of, is even Lord of the Sabbath. He says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Man, that made him mad, right? They immediately started looking for a way to destroy him. So in their minds, he said he can forgive sin, and he said he's Lord of the Sabbath. They know very well that he's claiming to be God, so they're saying he's a blasphemer, and from then on, they're trying to kill him. They're trying to figure out how to get rid of him, how to kill him, as far as the, uh, the religious leaders. But the people are amazed, and we're getting a picture of who this man, who this Jesus is. Mark is giving us that picture. Jesus is special is because he is from God in Mark 3, 22 through 35. And those who follow him are part of God's family. Mark 4, 1 through 34, Jesus teaches about the kingdom. And he tells us that his message won't find purchase in every person. There will be those who it doesn't affect. But there are those that it will affect. And our job as man is to sow the seeds and to reap the harvest, but God causes the growth. Great things, he says, in the kingdom can come from humble beginnings. In Mark 4, 35-41, we see that Jesus is special because he's the master of even the storms. And in 4:41, the followers wonder at who he is, that even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is this guy? What is this good news? The disciples are on this journey of learning as they watch him. We should be on the journey of learning as Mark tells us the story. Mark 5, 1 through 20. Jesus is, isn't just special in Israel. Okay, he's great. He's, is, he, he's a Jewish guy and he's done great things in Israel. But now he goes outside of Israel and he does the same thing. He, he even has power of the demons in the Gentile territory. He doesn't just have power in Israel. He has power in the Gentile territory too. Man, he's special. And in 520, the people marvel at the great things he does. That's the response of the people. They're marveling at the great things he does. Mark 5, 21 through 43, Jesus has power over sickness and even death. Okay? Even death. He raises the little girl from death. And in 542, the response of the people, they're completely astounded. Completely astounded. In Mark 6, 1 through 6, he's rejected by his own townspeople. And I only bring this one up because this is one of, every time I read this verse, I just kind of have to chuckle to myself. 6, um, 6, where remember he's in Nazareth and, and uh, he said a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. And then 6, 6 is just a very, very small verse. It says, and he wondered at their unbelief. Sorry, 6, 5. It says, and he could do no miracles there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. That's all. You know, he's special because even when he can't do miracles, he lays his hands on people and he heals them. But that's all he could do. I mean, he couldn't do anything else. So, you know, who, who is he really? I, I just, it kind of makes me chuckle every time I read that verse. That that's all he could do because of their lack of faith. He couldn't do anything else. If somebody did, does that today, they fill big auditoriums and get lots of money for it, right? But Jesus, Jesus... Even though he's rejected by his own townspeople, he still can heal a few sick people. Mark 6, 7 through 13, we see that, that, that Jesus is able to not only have that power for himself, but he's able to give that power to somebody else. Again, a little indication that 
how special he is. This is, this is not just a man. I may claim to be a healer, but I can't make you a healer. He's kind of indicating, guess what, I'm deity. I'm God here. I can give my authority to cast out demons and heal to anybody I want to give it to. Jesus is special because of that. In Mark 6, 30 through 44, we see he's special because he miraculously feeds 5,000 people. Immediately after that, Mark 6, 45 through 52, he's special because he walks on water and he calms the storm again. The response of the people in Mark 6, 51 and 52, they were greatly astonished. It says he got into the boat with them and the wind stopped and they were greatly astonished for they had not, listen, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Mark is showing us how special he is. He's showing us Jesus' authority. And we either open up to that and go, yeah, I believe, or our hearts are hardened. He's still got work to do in the disciples' lives. He's still got work to do in the disciples' lives. Anybody watch The Chosen in here? I'm a fan of The Chosen. I just caution you. It's, it's, it's well done. I just caution you to keep it in its proper place. People, it is fiction. Okay, It is a fictional account around the Bible about how things could have happened. But when you watch The Chosen, you don't say, oh yeah, this is what happened. Okay, You go to Scripture to see what happened. The, uh, but it's, it, it's great. The, the scene, or the, the, the episode where he comes, where he walks on where he calms the storm, they just have some great lines in The Chosen. I don't remember which disciple it is, but one of the disciples uh, says, he says, I just can't believe that this is, this is the second most amazing thing I've seen today. Because he saw Jesus feed 5,000 people miraculously, and now he's seen him walking on water. And it's just a great line where he says, man, I'm just amazed that this is, or I can't believe this is the second most amazing thing I've seen today. Uh, so, you know, and that kind of gets to that purpose. You know, look at what all the disciples are seeking. He miraculously feeds 5,000. We're out in the boat. We're straining away, and here comes Jesus moseying on the water. Gets in the boat, and everything gets calm. Who is this guy? What is this good news? Mark 7, 24 through 37, he heals the Gentile daughter, the Syrophoenician one. We just talked about this last week, and he does it from a distance. He doesn't even have to go. She just asks him, he says, ah, go home, your daughter's well. He doesn't have to be there. He's special, he doesn't even have to be there to do it. He just, man, he just says it, and it's done. 737, the people are utterly astonished and say he does all things well. Mark started at, this is, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. What is the good news? And he's been showing us what the good news is. He's been showing us who this Jesus is. Mark's very into action. We see immediately, 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 he's into action. He's showing us through Jesus' actions who he is. That brings us to this morning. Remember, 6.52, they were greatly astonished for they had not gained any insight from the incident with the loaves. So Jesus, he knows. He knows it's hard to bring these people along sometimes. He's going to do it again. Back into 8, the feeding of the 4,000. In those days again, when there was a great multitude, 
and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the multitude because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Again, we see Jesus' compassion. We've seen it throughout the book, and we see it again. He's compassionate. He cares about his creation. He cares about his people. He doesn't want to send them away. And his disciples, ah, they're on that arrow. They need, to, they need to back up a little bit and take a look at the big picture we've just talked about because his disciples say, where are we going to find food to feed these people? I know you want to, but where are we going to do it? They had gained no insight from the previous feeding. Their hearts were hardened, so God's, Jesus is still working on them. He's going to do it again. Although I think from the indications in this and the parallel passage, they, they come along a little quicker this time. They're catching on. Because he just asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven. And he directed the multitude to sit down, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to the disciples to serve them. And they served them to the multitude. So it doesn't seem like they put up much of a fuss this time. They just do it. And again, like we saw last time, we see that God allows us to join in his work. And he could have just had everybody sit down and miraculously the loaves and the fishes end up in their hands, right? But he wants us to work along with him. He allows us to work. We see his compassion for people. We see his power, obviously, that he can do this. And we see that he wants us to help him in his work. And finally, we see the abundance. God provides abundantly. Not just barely, but abundantly. They had seven basketfuls. Well, I'm, I'm guessing seven basketfuls left over after everybody is satisfied. I'm guessing that's more than seven loaves. You know, and these are large baskets. These are like baskets that you could put a person in. So that's a lot of leftover food. God provides lavishly. Then we get in to the very ironic section. And, and verses 10 through 13 look back a little bit and they look forward. They're almost kind of a, a transitional uh, a section of Scripture here. And they're going to look forward to, to what Chris is going to talk to us about next week. But it says, Immediately he entered a boat and went to, uh, with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Just fed 4,000. He's fed 5,000. He's healed leprosy. He's walked on water. He's cast out demons. We need a sign. If you just show us a sign. And I would believe if you would just show me a sign. We know it's a disingenuous request because Mark tells us that they're doing it to test him. They're not doing it to really... They don't want insight into who he is. They're doing it to test him. So it's disingenuous. They're trying to catch him in something. And I love, as, we, as you go through the Gospels, I love watching the Pharisees and the scribes try to catch him in something and his responses because they're always so perfect and they're the same in there. And he does what? He sighs deeply. Sighs deeply in his spirit. Sighs deeply in his spirit and says, no sign will be given. Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say, no sign will be given to this generation. So they're testing him. A lot of commentators are all over the place on this. And, you know, some people say, well, 
they're wanting a, a, a sign like uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel where, where, where fire comes down from heaven. Um, uh, some people say that it's a, a uh, you know, he's done all these miracles, but this, he, they want to see a more powerful sign that, that, makes, that, that leaves no doubt that he is God. Um, I personally agree with those that I think they're looking because in their mind they go, when the Messiah comes, he's going to overthrow the Romans and establish the kingdom. So, so far, he has done a lot of amazing stuff, but he hasn't given any indication that he's going to overthrow the Romans. So I think that's the kind of sign they're looking for. They're like, hey, show us a sign that you're really the Messiah, that you're going to overthrow the Romans so that we can believe in you. And we see that a couple of places. Um, uh, we see it in, in, when he's on the cross, we see it again in Mark 15 and the parallel passage, Matthew 27, uh, where they say, what do they say to him? They say, come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. Right? You saved others, save yourself. Come down from the cross and we'll believe from you. What would a coming down from the cross have been? He could have done it, but it would have been a direct assault on Rome's authority. Because Rome put him up there, right? So if he came down, it would have been a direct result or assault on their authority. So I think they're looking for a sign that he is the Messiah that they're looking for. Hey, I know you have done all these amazing things, but I'm going to ask for a sign because I want you to show me a sign that you're the God that I want, that you're the Messiah that I expect, that you're the Messiah that, I'm, that, that I've been taught my entire life. And the book of Mark is showing you that, yes, he's the Messiah, but not the way you were expecting him. And we're really going to see that in the second half of the book of Mark. So I think they're looking for a sign that... They want a sign that shows that he's on board with their agenda. As opposed to them getting on board with God's agenda. I'm just glad that none of us ever do that in our lives. Right? We would never ask God to bless what we want as opposed to trying to figure out what he wants. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you guys would never do that. Uh, so we don't have anything to learn from Mark in, in, in that case. But uh, yeah, make, Let's make sure that we in our lives try to figure out what God is doing and get on board with that as opposed to coming up with our nice little plans for ourselves and asking God to bless those. Let's go to the parallel passages real quick. Uh, again, instead of trying to understand uh, and submit to God's plan, they want him to get on board with their plan. And, and, and Jesus in his responses here and in his responses in, in some other places clearly tells us that you have all the evidence you need, so I'm not going to give you a sign. So Matthew 16, 1 through 4. We get a little more detail from Matthew. It says, And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came up to him, testing him, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the sign of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. So basically what he tells them, he says, you, you think you can read the weather, you see certain things, you think something, but you can't see the sign of the times. Look at all at what I've done. I'm not going to give you the sign you want because what I've done is sufficient. What I've done is sufficient signs. And if you would open up your eyes, you would see it. 
One writer put it this way. He said, the issue at hand is Jesus' authority, which they reject. He says, Jesus has given sufficient evidence of who he is. Faith perceives it. Unbelief rejects it. Jesus won't give them what they want because he's already done sufficient signage for anyone who has eyes to see. Think of when John sends his disciples because he's even a little worried. He's going, you know, John sends his disciples to say, hey, are you the one we've waited for? Are you the one we've waited for? And that's in Luke 7 if you want to go look at it later. What does Jesus answer to them? He doesn't say yes. He says, go back and report to John what you've seen. The blind see, the lame walk. I've given sufficient signs. I'm not going to give any more. He says he'd see, he'd tell, uh, they'd see the sign of Jonah. Because, of course, his resurrection, surely when he walks out of the grave and is seen alive, that will be sufficient. Right? Because if somebody sees somebody raised from the dead, they'll believe. Right? Well, astute Bible students automatically think of Luke 16, Lazarus and the rich man, right? Where Lazarus and the rich man both die, and Lazarus is, is with Abraham, Abraham's bosom in, in paradise in heaven, and, and the rich man is in torment. And he asks Lazarus, hey, send somebody to my family. And what's Abraham's? response to him. He says, send somebody from the dead so that, that they'll see. And, and Laz, or, uh, Abraham's response to the rich man is, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe if somebody's raised from the dead. They're not going to believe if somebody's raised from the dead. The signs are sufficient and unbelief accepts it. Or, un, or belief accepts it. Submission accepts it. Unbelief rejects it. Again, if you want to read the full story, we don't have time to go there this morning, but Luke 16, 29 through 31 specifically, but Luke 16 for that story of, of Lazarus and the rich man. That's and, and, and what that tells us that if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe if somebody raises from the dead is exactly what happened in Jesus' time. Because that's the end point Mark is getting to. Hey, Jesus is going to walk out of the grave. And guess what? They're still not going to believe. We have all this evidence that Jesus walked out of the grave. We have Mark telling us that. Where are we in our belief? Are we still looking for a sign? Or are we submitting ourselves to Jesus Christ? Do we see that, yes, Mark has shown us that he is special, so special, he's one of a kind. Nobody ever like him. He's God. He's man. He died for us. He raises from the grave. That's where we're getting to. We're in the point in Mark where he is almost done with most of his miraculous signs. He's almost to the point, Chris is going to start covering it next week. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to see what Jesus does is just a few more miracles. He gives some teaching, and then he gets them to profess who he is. And his disciples say, you are the Messiah. And after they get there, the rest of the book of Mark is pretty much, he does a few miracles. You know, he just heals some people. It's no big deal. He does a few miracles, but most of the rest of the book of Mark is them teaching him, okay, great, I've got you to finally accept that I'm the Messiah. 
Now I'm going to show you that the Messiah is not what you think the Messiah is. Not right now. You think Messiah is going to come in power and overthrow and rule, and I'm not. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to raise again. So that's what most of the second half of the book of Mark is. You know, Messiah is coming in power, and he is going to rule the kingdom someday. It just wasn't then. That's what we're looking forward to. So how about us? A couple questions for us. Is the testimony of the fantastically designed world around us enough for us to seek God? Or are we still looking for another sign? Is the testimony of Scripture enough for us to believe Jesus? Or are we still looking for a sign? Is the testimony of our changed lives enough for us to trust Jesus no matter what comes our way? Or are we still looking for a sign? In Matthew 12, you know, this wasn't the first time they'd looked for a sign. Matthew tells us uh, that they had looked for a sign earlier. In Matthew 12, we don't have time to look there, but you can go later. And what he tells them then is basically, he says, what you've seen is sufficient. He says, as a matter of fact, Nineveh had less evidence than you do, and they repented. Therefore, they're going to accuse you in the future. The queen of Sheba, the queen of the south that came and saw Solomon had less evidence than you do, and she believed. Therefore, that's going to accuse you in the end time. We have sufficient evidence. Will we believe? Will you believe? Will I believe? And those of us who do believe, will we trust? Or will we still try to do things our own way? Well, fortunately, for those of you not convinced, we're only about halfway through Mark. He's going to keep telling us. But as we're on that journey, please keep yourself in that mindset of, man, I don't know the end of the story yet. I'm learning with the disciples. And it's amazing how much richer the text will be for you than going, oh, yeah, I've heard this before. Yeah, 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 yeah. Come on, come on, come on. I've heard this before. Let's get to the, let's get to the good part. Stay in that mindset where I'm, I'm learning with the disciples. I'm, man, this is incredible what's going on around me. And we'll be ready for that journey of discovery. Look for how Mark is showing how special Jesus is. That Mark is showing that he is the Messiah, that he is worth following. Mark's going to show us, continue showing us that he is God. He's worthy to be followed. He dies in our place. He walks out of the grave. He's alive. Mark doesn't get there, but we know from the rest of the Bible, not only is he alive, but he's coming back folks. So hallelujah to that. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, just the way it instructs us. Lord, we thank you for uh, its depth, uh, the surface level, the next level, and, and, and that we can read it over and over again and study it for years. And it still amazes us, Lord. We thank you for the response of the people, that they were amazed at who Jesus was and what he was doing. And I pray that our response is the same. That we never become so familiar that we stopped being in awe of Jesus Christ who came and lived the perfect life, who died for our sins, who rose again to prove, to show that he was exactly who he said he was. And Lord, we thank you that he's coming back. And while we wait, I pray that you enabled us through the power of your Holy Spirit to stand strong on your truth and your words and to spread that truth with gentleness and respect 
to those around us. Lord, we love you. I pray that we live our lives showing you how much we love you because you have purchased us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.